3CR Breakfast acknowledges that we broadcast from the stolen lands of the Wandri and Boonarong peoples of the Kulin Nation. We pay respect to their elders, past and present, and acknowledge the continued resilience of First Nation peoples in the face of ongoing colonisation and settlement. We recognise sovereignty was never ceded and a treaty never signed. CR Breakfast. Oh, yeah. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning, Ella. How are you? Oh, sorry, there I am. Apologies. <laughs> it's early. Nice to see you. Wednesday the 6th of April. Yeah, that's right. Good to have you back with us, Claudia. So you were away on a break last week? A couple of days away at the beginning of last week. It was um, a bit unusual going away on a Monday and Tuesday. Yeah, wild. <laughs> it's just the days that the diary was free. And, uh, yeah, really nice. We just went to Port Point Lonsdale, which was not very far, but very peaceful and calming and... We did some lovely walks on the beach and, yeah, just always nice to get a, away. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I think we're appreciating it even more now after lockdown. Just those little exactly. couple of days you can get out of the city really help. I feel like we have to make up for two years of being very inbound. Yeah, though I think um, everyone must be feeling the same way. My partner and I are going away this weekend and um, it's tough finding an Airbnb these days. So we <laughs> We're not right. the most organised and, and um, yeah, everything really books out. And I've noticed um, a few places that we've booked previously, like pre-pandemic, the prices are much higher mm. as well. So I guess the demand for domestic travel must still be quite high. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Oh. And what about your weekend? Uh, yeah, mine's good. I've had a very busy week, so I'm in the process of moving house. Um haven't yet actually moved, but just all the organising and um, I live in a share house, moving to another share house, so you have the usual thing of you've got to find your next share house and then you've got to find the person to fill your room in your current share house. Um, and then I managed to, um, as you know, break my phone on Monday um, and I was working so late I couldn't get it fixed, but then started so early I couldn't get it fixed the next morning, so I then had this huge backlog of messages to get through. It wasn't great timing, but no, it's good. I'm um, moving to a nice place in Brunswick East, uh, downsizing to a two-person share house, so that's nice. Um, and I'm saying, yeah, this house looks very... Um, feels like a proper adult house instead of a uh, share house vibe. There's no, like, paint peeling off the walls. It feels like it's going to be warm in winter, so... I'm excited. Ah, <laughs> very, very nice. It r- reminds me of that song by Jude Pearl, who uh, sings, she's a comedian, but uh, she sings this song about living in a share house and, yeah. The, Though something. <laughs> the mouldy food in the fridge or the, yeah. the share mate that eats the special thing that you'd put in the fridge for yourself. Yes. <laughs> All those sorts of uh, Occurrences, yes. Yeah, my um, new housemate is, yeah, we've just met off of um, this Facebook group everyone uses for share housing fairy floss. Um, but he seems very clean and organised, so I'm hopeful. <laughs> well, I'll keep my fingers crossed for you. <laughs> yes, and a very cute cat at the new house, so it's all looking good for me. <laughs> mm. oh, big new chapter. Yeah. 
And um, what do we have planned for the show today? We should um, tell listeners we do have Jacob joining us later in the show. So, yeah, we've got a full team today, which will be nice. Yeah, so we're starting off uh, this morning with um, an interview with Andrew Norton, who's a tertiary policy expert, and he's going to be talking about the Job Ready Package and its impact on universities. Excellent. And yeah, that's an interview from Eidwin, who used to do Wednesday breakfast regularly um, and now sends us the odd uh, piece to play, which is very nice. Always a nice surprise when we get a segment yeah, from Eidwin. She exactly. does a great interview. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And um, yeah, there'll be a lot of um, interview uh, university students who will be interested to hear about this because um, it's sort of happening behind the scenes a bit. So yeah, I'm really mm. interested to hear that un- be unpacked. Excellent. All right, and then, yeah, I'm up next around 7.30, um, so I'll be joined by Josephine Langbian, um, a senior lawyer with the Human Rights Law Centre, um, and we're going to be talking about the recent parliamentary inquiry into the efficacy, fairness, timeliness and costs of the processing and granting of visas uh, within the family visa system. Um, so there were over 500 submissions made to this inquiry, um, and, yeah, a lot of calls for an urgent overhaul um, to what many have called a broken system. So I'm keen to hear more from Josephine about their uh, submission into the inquiry and what they want to see done. Mm, that'll be really interesting, another yeah. broken system being investigated. Yes, quite a few of them. <laughs> and, um, yeah, at 7.50, um, we've got an interview from Jacob. So they'll be speaking with Associate Professor David C. Holmes, who's Director of Monash Climate Change Communication Research Hub. And they're talking about the climate misinformation and how it will impact the upcoming election. I believe that's a former professor of Jacobs, so that'll be interesting. (laughs) And that'll be followed by an interview with Sarah Krasnerstein. She's the author of this month's quarterly essay, which is aptly titled Not Waving, Drowning, Mental Illness and Vulnerability in Australia. So I'll be having a chat with her just after 8 o'clock and hearing uh, about her views on mental illness and Australia's attitudes to mental illness and vulnerability. Excellent. Sounds like a good show. Um, Lots of important information to get through. Absolutely. (laughs) And uh, have you got a nice song for us? Yes, I thought we could ease into the morning, as you pointed out. I was going to go straight into the uh, information this morning, but maybe with our jam-packed show, it's good to give listeners a bit of a break. (laughs) Get your cup of tea. Yes, that's right. Um, So, yeah, as we're getting into the morning, we're going to hear from Asha Bolsley, um, and this song is called Harmon Raston Ki Jarukat.
If you want to hear us slam the atomic industry, then tune into the Radioactive Show on 3CR, 10 a.m. Saturdays. Earth Greetings have been making sustainable beautiful since 2003. Their 100% recycled cards, plastic-free stationery and earth-friendly gifts are made in Australia with the lightest possible planetary footprint. Shop online at earthgreetings.com.au or at one of over 500 stockists Australia-wide. Earth Greetings is a 3CR supporter. You're listening to 3CR Breakfast, and before the break, we heard a song from Asha Bosley. Um, and now we're going to go into a segment from Eidwin. That's right. So a little bit of background on this one. Uh, the Job Ready Graduate Package was introduced in September 2020 and has fundamentally changed the funding agreements between universities and students. Government funding is capped, and student contributions have been tied to perceived job outcomes of courses either increased or decreased, depending on the course. As of January this year, the policy package is fully implemented. The last policy to be introduced was the low completion rate, meaning that if you fail a set number of subjects, you could be at risk of losing Commonwealth funding. Wednesday Breakfast contributor Edwin Jeffrey spoke to Andrew Norton to get his take on the contradictions inherent to the package, the latest policy and how the package is impacting students and universities. If you're like me and the student, then you're probably enjoying the jubilation of returning to campus for face-to-face learning. However, while courses and classrooms may look the same, the systems behind our universities have radically changed since last time we were on campus. This is due in large part to a policy called the Job Ready Graduate Package. The package was introduced in June of 2020 by Education Minister Dan Tian. Under the policy, the government radically changed the way student and government contributions to universities worked. The new policy meant on average student contributions would increase, while government subsidies for students' places would decrease. Government funding had effectively become capped. The policy was heavily criticised, most because the government funding had been tied to job outcomes of the degrees, incentivising students in courses such as teaching, STEM and nursing with lower student costs while hiking the price for law and humanity degrees. The story has fallen out of the wash cycle, but as of 2020, January 2020 has just finished its final implementation with the introduction of the low completion rate. I caught up with Professor Andrew Norton to catch up on where the policy is at. The conversation kicks off with Professor Norton introducing himself and us discussing the introduction of the Job Ready Graduate Bill all the way back in 2020 and its controversy from introduction to final implementation this year. So I'm currently a professor in the practice of higher education policy at the Australian National University. Uh, before then, I was a higher education program director at the Grattan Institute I've been working in higher education policy in various forms since the late 1990s. On the 3rd of September 2020, the Job Ready Bill was referred by the Senate to the Education and Employment Legislation Committee for inquiry. 
In your submission, you said that the bill had fundamental flaws and recommended that the bill be rejected. Could you outline your main issues with the bill at that time? Well, the bill was designed to really do two big things. One was to increase the number of student places in the future, and the other was to try and steer students towards uh, courses that the government believed would lead to jobs. And the mechanism for doing this was, essentially for the jobs, was to uh, decrease the student contributions in the courses that the government wanted to favour, for example, nursing and teaching, and increase the student contributions in disfavoured courses, which included arts, uh, law and business. Now, one of the difficulties here is they also fiddled with the total funding rate. So that's what the student pays plus what the government pays the university. And so one of the things that's going on here in some of the favoured fields, uh, the university actually gets less money per student than they would have under the old system. And so while the student may be encouraged to do this course because it's cheaper, uh, the university, for the same reason, won't want to do it as much because they will get less money from it. The other problem is that it does, it, they want to increase the number of student places, but they aren't actually increasing total Cornwall funding. And so one of the traps here is that essentially they want to have a lower average Cornwall contribution, that's their subsidy, and basically spread their money over a larger number of students. But if students actually do favour uh, the courses with new higher subsidies, such as nursing and teaching, they will consume more of the fixed amount of money that uh, universities get from the government, and that may actually reduce the number of student places. And so whether the two goals can be achieved simultaneously, to me, is not at all clear. And for that reason, I thought there was a contradiction in the policy, and therefore there was a danger that it would simply backfire. Mm. And the outcome of the uh, September inquiry largely supported the intentions of the bill and in, it, it was passed in October of 2020. So since then, we've had two budgets and a year's worth of student data that you've been following on your uh, blog. Can you comment on how the bill changes the way we view the role of universities and government funding and if we are seeing any impacts yet? Well, the government assumes that uh, these changed student contributions will affect the behaviour of students and the choices they make between courses. But we've actually had experience of this in the past. You know, there's been previous mm -hmm. discounts for nursing and teaching and science. And generally speaking, there doesn't seem to be a big impact from this. And the reason is quite logical that people actually have you know, a, a fairly fixed range of interests. And you know, if you always wanted to do arts, you know, nothing's going to make you do engineering. They're just two different areas of interest and the price signals will not sway you. If you are concerned about money, uh, it's always going to be much more significant to look at your job prospects when you finish the degree and your lifetime earnings than, you know, sort of an extra ten or $20,000 on your hex bill. So I argue, many people argue this wouldn't have a big impact. And I think we're probably largely seeing that in the data that we've got to date, which is from applications. That's the only data we've got, no enrolments. Mm. And so interestingly... In the broad category of society and culture, which includes arts and economics and psychology, despite a new higher student contribution of $14,500 a year, we actually saw demand go up, which is absolutely the contrary to what we would expect um, under the, the Job Ready Graduates policy. But we also saw demand going up in nursing, which is another field the government was encouraging. So my view is that 
the nursing, for example, is a reaction to COVID. We've had endless health news the last two years. Uh, students have picked that up. People who've got a slight health interest have chosen nursing. But really, I'm not convinced that we're seeing in applications data uh, anything that strongly supports the government's original theory around this. Mm. And one of the most disputed areas of the Job Ready Graduate package was the number of student places that the government is creating through the, pro- through the policy. So in... Uh, 2021, 27,000 government-funded domestic places were promised, uh, with that increasing to 49,000 by 2024. Now, analysis released from the Centre for the Study of Higher Education last year indicated that the government is unlikely to be able to deliver on these promises. Uh, Do you agree with that analysis? The difficulty is it's very hard to calculate what effect it's going to have. Mm -hmm. The government didn't even clearly say what the base year or assumptions were were comparing these numbers to, which is a starting point problem. Mm -hmm. So the difficulty is that the government does not actually allocate student places. It allocates dollars, and because the places have quite a range of values attached to them, from you know twenty something thousand dollars in medicine to you know thousand one hundred dollars in arts, it's very very difficult to know how many places there'll be because it all depends on where the students are enrolled. If everyone does arts, yes, we will easily meet these target numbers. Um, but if people do some of the courses the government wants them to do, like nursing and the health-related courses and science and engineering, then it will be much, much more difficult to reach the targets. And this is one of my concerns about this policy, that there are actually a wide range of not-crazy scenarios about the number mm-hmm. of places, some of which are consistent with the government's numbers, but others of which are not. Right, so just just to get you correct here, um, also to understand it correctly, there's a lot of uh, detail that's missing, is that correct, from like understanding the policy better? Yes, because it all depends on assumptions about what students are going to study, which the government has not published. And so if you vary those assumptions, that will significantly change the number of student places that you predict. Having said all this... Um, my prediction was that the, the policy would actually reduce places for 2021, and that's you know, complex issues around the way they have grandfathered some students, but the university offers actually went up slightly. So we're probably not seeing that kind of negative scenario, but nor are we seeing any great surge in offers from the universities. And just for the audience, just that, that term, grandfathering fees, and sort of the... I wonder, that was another problem or, or issue that was brought up with the bill is this idea that some students that students wouldn't have grandfather fees continuing and stuff like that. Could you explain just a little bit of Yeah, so of gra- grandfathering essentially means that if, for example, you started your course in 2020 before job-ready graduates started, you'll get paid the, you'll pay the same rate if it's higher than um, otherwise. So say you originally started in arts, paying about six dollars $7,000 a year in 2020, you won't have to pay the $14,500 for your study in 2021. But what the government did was they said if you're studying, started nursing in 2020 and then continue in 2021, you'll pay the new discount rate, so save about half. And so that is burning through a whole lot of money, uh, subsidising those people, and that's the reason why I thought that because the universities can spend so much money on these grandfather students, there may not be enough new places available for 2021. Right, so we have a sort of funding, funding problem here. Future we do, funding yeah. problem. Yeah. As it's turned out, I think the numbers are fairly stable. Mm-hmm. And the reason 
for this may be something which we call over-enrolment, that is that universities are taking students over and above what they've been funded to do. That's quite normal in the history of higher education, but it means that their average per student funding rate is going down. In January of this year, we've seen additional changes coming in under the package. Uh, what was introduced was the low completion rate. So this is where if a student has a fail rate of more than 50% of the units of study attempted after attempting eight or more units in a bachelor and certain degrees, they're at risk of losing their Commonwealth assistance, so their HEX or HELP. Do you think this is making the system inherently more unfair? Yeah, well, it's actually slightly worse than failing because it's failing or withdrawing after the census date. So... Some people just do that. So this does put people at risk of losing funding for their current course. But having said that, if you have failed half your subjects in a year, uh, you'll probably have to go to the Unsatisfactory Progress Committee of your university anyway. So you may well be excluded in either case. But what this bill does is reduce the flexibility the university has. We'll say, well, you know, you had a, you know, you didn't adjust quickly enough to starting at uni or something in particular that happened, and they've got less discretion in saying we'll give you a second chance. On the other hand, you can still go to another university if they will accept you. So this may not be the most efficient way of dealing with it, but there are workarounds if you find yourself in this situation. Obviously, you've been following this issue live on your blog and writing different things, um, and you've put out a few things saying, you know, here's my predictions, here's the outcomes. It's still too soon to say for a lot of different stuff, but where do you think we're at with this bill and this, this new change this year? Like, what do you think we should be sort of watching out for this year or watching develop this year? Look, I really think when the 2021 enrolment data finally comes out, we've really got to drill down to, you know, quite narrow subject level to see if there are odd patterns that we should be concerned about. Having said that, I think what's probably going on is that particularly with uh, COVID, universities bent over backwards last year to make sure that people had a chance to study when they wanted to. And I'm maybe a bit concerned that with the, the COVID crisis, at least in a more manageable phase from a university point of view, that that may cease. And we may see some you know, weak response from the universities to student demand over the next couple of years. So that would be my concern. Uh, the other big thing to watch, of course, is the federal election. If Labor wins, they may well change a lot of this. That was my little wrap-up on the Job Ready Graduate Program, what it is and where it's currently at. Should you want to follow Andrew Norton's analysis, head over to his blog at andrewnorton.net.au. And that was Idwin speaking with Professor Andrew Norton about the Job Ready Graduate Policy. And for those that are interested in doing a little bit more reading on this, you can check out an article written by Mark Warburton. It's called The Rhetoric and Reality of Job Ready Graduates, and that's on the University of Melbourne website. Excellent. Yeah, that was a really good interview and important to hear. Mm. Um, now we're going to go to a song. When we come back, we'll be speaking with Josephine Langbian from the Human Rights Law Centre about the family visa system. Um, but in the meantime, this is La Appuntamento from Ornella Venoni. Yeah. 
oggi quasi certamente sto sbagliando su di te ma una volta in più che cosa può cambiare nella vita mia accettare questo strano passando a casa ma la nostalgia di rivedere te è forte più del pianto questo sole accende sul mio volto un segno di speranza sto aspettando quando a un tratto ti vedrò spuntare in lontananza Se tu non arrivi, non esisto, non esisto, non esisto. È cambiato il tempo, sta piovendo, ma resto ad Cosa il mondo può pensare, io non me ne voglio andare. Io mi guardo dentro e mi domando, ma non sento niente. Sono solo un resto di speranza perduta tra la gente. Amore già tardi, ma non resisto.
Hi everyone, my name's Robbie Thorpe. I'm with 3CR Community Radio. Every year we have a subscription drive. It's a way of supporting our organisation maintain itself through the year and we rely on the support of the, the community. One way to do that is to subscribe and become a member. Become part of this organisation itself. Get in contact with 3CR. You can go to the website 3cr.org.au or you can ring on 94198377. ensures that our voices, Aboriginal voices, are heard on this radio station. So it's a good way of supporting Aboriginal people as well by becoming a subscriber for 3CR Community Radio. To enable change, we need to show broad community support. Show your support for walking and cycling in the city of Yarra by appearing as a champion on the Streets Alive website, representing your local street, neighbourhood or school. It's fast, free and simple. Learn more at streets-alive-yarra.org. A 3CR supporter. listening to 3CR Breakfast and before the break we heard La Appuntamento from Ornella Venoni. Now we're going to take a look at the recent parliamentary inquiry into the family visa system. The inquiry handed down its report last week which shone a light on people's experience of navigating what many have called a broken system and made recommendations for urgent reform. So there were over 500 submissions made, one of which was from the Human Rights Law Centre. And we're joined now by one of their senior lawyers, Josephine Longbian. Good morning and welcome to 3CR, Josephine. Good morning. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for joining us. It's a pleasure. Now, um, a number of submissions were made last week uh, recommending urgent changes, and I'm keen to hear more about um, what you want to see happen. Uh, but first, can you tell us a bit about the current state of the visa system and why, oh, sorry, the family visa system in particular and why an inquiry was necessary? Absolutely. Uh, so our family migration system is, it's really a broken system and it's failing families. It's expensive, it's complicated, it's incredibly slow and it deliberately excludes some families, so particularly people who have come to Australia as refugees. And this system means that, you know, parents are are missing out on seeing their kids grow up. Partners are trying to maintain long-distance relationships for years on end. And this is not the way things should be. Our migration policies should aim to reunite people with their loved ones. But currently... The Morrison government is actually using the family migration system um, to keep people apart for years on end. Um, And, you know, that's why we had this Senate committee inquiry. The committee was tasked with investigating the efficiency and, and the fairness of this system. It was an inquiry made up of senators from across the political spectrum and as you said, they received evidence from hundreds of, of legal experts, community groups and, and individuals who are battling through this system. Um, and that evidence was, was really stark and showed um, how families have, have been ripped apart for years. And that committee made some really significant findings. Yeah, absolutely. As you said, it's pretty... Um 
shocking the stakes are so high in terms of the impact it has on people's lives and it's all down to bureaucracy. Um, it's, yeah, hard to um, understand. <laughs> um, can you tell us a little about some of the um, recommendations in the report that was released last week? The, the committee made a unanimous recommendation uh, that, that more needs to be done to make sure that our family migration system is, is fair and efficient and transparent. And they recommended a major and urgent overhaul of the way family visas are processed. But the problem is these issues aren't just down to bureaucratic inefficiency. So while we absolutely do need to update the way that visa applications are processed, that's just the first step. And what we also need to see is, is real shift in the attitudes and the policies that shape our family migration program. You know, it's clear that, that family reunion isn't a priority, a priority for the Morrison government, but we need a system that aims to reunite people with their loved ones rather than intentionally keeping them apart. Yeah, absolutely. And um, can you tell us a bit about the how the process of the inquiry works? As you said, there are a number of different parties involved. Uh, that's right. The, the, the Senate committee is, is made up of um, senators from across the political spectrum, and um, it, it, this is an open and, and public inquiry system, so uh, that's why people from all walks of life are able to participate in that process and provide evidence. And that enabled the, the senators to hear some incredibly compelling evidence from people who are themselves fighting to make their way through this family migration system and to, to reunite with their loved ones. Um, as, as one example, uh, we worked with uh, a man named Rahula Husseini who made a submission to the Senate's inquiry and he told the committee members about how his his wife and his baby daughter are stranded in Afghanistan. Uh, his daughter was actually born after he left and so he's never even had the chance to meet her. But because he is on a temporary protection visa here in Australia, he has no prospect, no pathway to bring them here and be together as a family. And he was able to tell the, the Senate committee exactly how devastating that is him. And so um, the, the process is that the, the senators uh, hear this evidence and, and they write their report, which ultimately makes a recommendation to government. And now the ball is really in the government's court to, to act on that recommendation. Yeah. And as you said so far, the Morrison government um, have not shown a lot of priority when it comes to family reunification. Mm -hmm. They don't place a lot of value on it. Um, I believe when we had the federal budget released last week, there was a cut to the number of partner visas, um, no reduced cost to family visas. Um, what response have you had since the release of this report? Firstly, you're absolutely right, Ella. There were some really disappointing announcements made in the budget last week. And the sad thing is that, that budget was actually handed down on the exact same day that the Senate committee released this report. And on one hand, you, we've got government senators who are contributing to this report that says, 
we need urgent change in the family migration system. And at the same time, the government is delivering a budget that actually slashes the number of places available in that family uh, migration stream and is incentivising temporary visas, tourist visas, student visas, but making no change to the exorbitant costs to family visas. So it's really disappointing to see those two really starkly contrasting messages being handed down on the same day. Uh, in terms of reaction, I think uh, a lot of people who contributed to this inquiry or who have had any kind of interaction with the, the family visa system um, would really agree with the recommendation that we need an urgent overhaul to the department systems and the way that visa applications are processed. But I think everybody's aware that that, that is just the first step and that we do need deeper policy changes. Yep, absolutely. And um, have the opposition parties been very vocal on their stance when it comes to um, family visas? Uh, I mean, opposition senators were, were part of this inquiry. Um, uh, the, the committee was, was chaired by a Labor senator. So we know that we have um, bipartisan support for change and bipartisan uh, recognition that there are problems that need to be addressed here. Uh, we're yet to see exactly what specific changes um, a Labor government might make to the family migration system. Um, but, you know, there are a number of things, there are a number of changes that, that they could make um, really quickly and easily that would, that would drastically improve the situation for so many families. And we really hope that they would make those changes. And, you know, that includes things like ending the use of temporary protection visas, which shut people out of the family sponsorship process altogether, um, abolishing discriminatory policies like uh, Ministerial Direction 80, which is this policy that really intentionally puts people who originally arrived by boat at the back of the visa processing queue. Uh, so um, getting rid of those discriminatory policies and making the process faster and more accessible uh, for everyone. Yeah, can you tell us a bit more about those processes, so the temporary protection visas and the ministerial direction 80, um, which have both been, yeah, called for change? Yeah, absolutely. So these are just a couple of ways that the Morrison government is using the family migration system as a tool to punish people who have sought safety in Australia. Um, so by keeping people on temporary protection visas and denying them permanent residency, the government ensures that thousands of people will never be eligible to sponsor their family members at all. And then policies like Ministerial Direction 80 uh, expressly target people and punish them for the way that they originally arrived in Australia seeking safety. Uh, they make them the, the lowest processing priority, but that means that their, their families' visa applications may never be processed because there's always more more applications than there are visa places available. So it's these kinds of policies that are intentionally targeting and uh, excluding refugee families from the prospect of, of being together and reuniting as a family. And um, families from, from all backgrounds are also impacted by the barriers like the incredible delays. You know, people are waiting years for these visa applications to be processed and the exorbitant costs that mean family reunion is really only available to families who have the wealth and the resources to, to pay for it. Yeah, yeah, it's a cruel system.
Um, and in your role as a um, lawyer with Human Rights Law Centre, um, has this inquiry left you hopeful that we're going to see change? Um, it, it makes me hopeful. We have to be hopeful. We've got to hold yeah. on to some <laughs> sort of hope. Um, it is it is a really important first step that that we've at least recognised um, these these issues and this report really does just confirm what we've known for years that the system is broken that it is plagued by these really deep seated issues uh, but having that on the public record having a, a confirmation from this Senate committee a commitment that that we need change, that is a hugely significant first step. So I am very hopeful that whichever party forms government, uh, they will listen to these recommendations and, and act as soon as possible. Yeah, definitely. All right, thanks so much for joining us this morning, Josephine. I think that's all we've got time for. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. All right, and that was Josephine Longbian from the Senior... Uh, sorry, a senior lawyer from the Human Rights Law Centre uh, talking to us about a parliamentary inquiry into the family visa system, which, as we just heard, is in need of urgent change. Um, we'll be back with you shortly. In the meantime, we're going to take a quick break. Common Social Change Library is an online collection of educational resources for those campaigning for social change. It collects, curates and distributes the key lessons and resources of progressive movements around Australia and across the globe. The library includes over 500 resources covering campaign strategy, community organising, activist history, digital campaigning, diversity and inclusion and much, much more. It's free to access the library, so check out the collection at www.commonslibrary.org. Common Social Change Library is a 3CR supporter. No me casará con eso, ni aunque el diablo me llevara, porque tiene los ojos blancos y la blanca colorada, como aquella que está sentada.
panadero que eso a ti sí te cumple. Cásate con un panadero que eso a ti sí te cumple. Goongaroo Environment Centre is a grassroots community organisation campaigning for East Gippsland's precious forests. For over 15 years we've been using direct action, citizen science and community engagement to stop the continued logging of precious native forests and threatened species habitat. After this summer's terrible bushfires there's an even greater urgency to protect what remains and the Victorian Government haven't ruled out plans to log the small fragments of unburnt forests and so-called salvage log in burnt areas. It's now so important that forests and wildlife are protected so they can recover. Head to gecko.org.au to keep updated with the latest news and to get involved. Gecko acknowledges the logging is happening on the stolen lands of the Gunnakurnai and Bidwell and Monaro people and that sovereignty was never ceded. A 3CR supporter. have a few children's picture books or footy boots that your kids have outgrown but want to find them a loving home we'll drop them in at 3CR and put them in the Books and Boots bin Books and Boots regularly sends pre-loved children's picture books and sports footwear to remote and regional First Nations communities and children across the country contact us at Books and Boots or go to the website www.booksandboots.org.au we love a good book listening to 3CR Breakfast and before the break we had No Combien, No Me Combien, excuse me, um, from Nicomedes Santa Cruz. Thanks Ella, you're joined by Jacob from 3CR Breakfast and up next we're going to be speaking about how the Australian government and the Murdoch media are globally renowned for their neglect of the climate emergency and misinformation on climate and climate policy has played a large part of this approach. So how do political parties and the media seek to benefit from incorrect or misconstrued information, and how do they put this out? Joining us now is John Cook, who is from the the Monash Climate Change Communication Research Hub. John, thanks for joining us this morning. Hi, Jacob. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. So let's start off... What are some common common forms of climate miscommunication that we have seen in politics and the media? We uh, just published some research uh, a few months ago looking at what the, wor- the most common arguments uh, were over the last 20 years. We found the biggest category of climate misinformation was actually attacking uh, climate science, trying to erode public trust so that they were less trustful of science and climate models. 
And we also found that climate solutions were, attacks on climate solutions were actually on the increase as well. They were becoming more prominent. And the latest trend we're seeing is an increase in greenwashing. Um, Organisations or businesses or governments selling themselves as being environmentally friendly when they're actually being harmful. Absolutely. It definitely rings a few bells there. Do you mind if I ask who are the main culprits? Are you allowed to, to tell us on air? Well, our analysis was focusing on two big sources of climate misinformation, conservative think tank organisations and climate denier blogs. We found that conservative think tanks are a really prolific source of misinformation. They often generate the original arguments that then get disseminated through um, blogs or social media or by politicians or the media. Uh, and so that, that's kind of the wellspring of a lot of the um, misinformation arguments that we see. Mm, interesting. And I know um, last night on Q&A, they actually had Gideon Rosner, who uh, some have called a climate denialist. I'm not, not putting anything out there on air. Um, but he also represents a conservative think tank. So do you think, in some sense, it kind of gives false legitimacy to people who don't actually have a lot of knowledge on climate change? Yeah, the, the problem is when, you, um, when the media presents people from an organisation um, without, without disclosing whether they have any actual expertise, to the general, the general public, they just see this person from a official sounding organization and think, well, they must be an expert on this topic. They're, they've got strong opinions and they're using lots of big words or they're quoting sources. And, and, and it might be that this, they're a lawyer. They have no climate science expertise or, or they just don't have the relevant expertise. And so fake experts are very persuasive, um, and common form of misinformation. Mm, absolutely. And turning the dial a bit now towards politics, because I know that we've, we've heard a lot the past couple of years, um, the Prime Minister in particular saying, we're going to meet and beat um, our Paris targets and language like that. So how do you think political parties can benefit from misinformation around climate and climate policies? If the public want to see climate action, if they're on board with the issue of climate change and want to see us doing something and the government policy is inadequate, they're not doing enough, then misinformation can be used to deflect criticisms and basically cover themselves from their bad performance. An example would be uh, the argument you just mentioned, uh, our current government saying that they're, they're achieving our goals in reducing our emissions. One of the um, ways that they... they um, the numbers is by including credits from past behaviour. So they're not actually reducing emissions now, they're including in our, our um, emission um, tally credits from the past. It's a bit like saying you're going to quit smoking and then say, well, I didn't smoke before I was 15 years old, so I'm going to take those 15 years of credit and keep smoking for another 15 years. Mm, that's a really great analogy and I'm curious if there's any kind of watchdog or I guess we don't really have a, a federal integrity commission. So who is holding political parties to account when they do say things like that that aren't entirely correct? So the Climate Council uh, are doing a good job of, of 
documenting um, uh, just whether the the government's policies are, are effective in addressing climate change, uh, and and there's also uh, other. I think the uh, IPCC just this last week have, um, have published their working group three report, or, or at least uh, there's something something coming out. Um, I'm not quite sure whether the full report is coming out yet. But what that does, the Working Group 3 report, is it looks at, um, it's about climate action. Uh, are we acting uh, sufficiently to avoid the worst impacts of climate change? And, and basically their answer is no. We're actually on track to re- increase our emissions rather than reduce them dramatically, which is what we really need to do at the moment. Mm, it's certainly a, a grim picture, but some good resources there, as you said, from the Climate Council that I think people can turn to for some more reliable and straightforward information. Now, I think um, climate change is absolutely set to be a big issue in the upcoming federal election. So how do you think public opinions on climate have shifted since 2019? Definitely the public have gotten more on board accepting the reality of climate change and the need to act on it. So we are seeing greater uh, support for climate action and climate policy. And and one of the reasons for that is uh, people are now realising that climate change isn't this distant threat that's happening to polar bears or will happen to our grandchildren. It's happening right now. Like We are feeling the direct impact of climate change with Mm. intensified bushfires, intensified floods, intensified heat waves, um, the the Great Barrier Reef, um, you know, being damaged. All of these things are happening now and, and affecting Australians. Mm, it certainly feels much more real, I think, in, in 2022 than it did in 2019, pre the, the bushfires, pre these uh, so-called one-in-100-year floods in Lismore. And how are we expecting the media to report on climate policy in the 2022 elections? Will it be any different from 2019? My expectation, or at least my hope, is that it will be a lot more prominent uh, in 22 compared to 2019, where climate wasn't a very prominent issue. Now, we've since 2019, we've had bushfires over the entire country. We've had these devastating floods this year. Uh, we've had um, some record heat waves over the last few years, uh, particularly nighttime heat waves, which, which are dangerous for human health. And we've also seen Australia being called out on the world stage just, again, recently over the last few weeks. The UN Secretary-General criticised, singled out Australia for their lack of action on climate change. And uh, we saw um, our Prime Minister in Glasgow not having a very happy time <laughs> because mm. Australia was is just a laggard on the world stage. So I think that all these factors will should combine to make climate change a much more prominent issue. I do hope it it takes up some more headlines this time around. And I guess moving forwards as well, what advice would you give to our listeners on how they can, I guess, identify misinformation and increase their media literacy? So the, the key way to avoid misinformation or identify misinformation and avoid being misled is to... um just familiarise yourself with the techniques being used to mislead. Uh, and that's actually been the main focus of my work, is just raising public awareness of the different misinformation techniques. And 
if I can give a little plug, um, we actually developed a critical thinking game that, that's free to the public. We want as many people to play it as possible at crankyuncle.com. And the point of this game is you're learning the different techniques used to mislead so that when you spot them out in the wild, you're less likely to actually be misled. Fantastic. We'll definitely pop that resource in our show notes. But perhaps now, we, while we've got you on air, can you give us um, shed some light on what are the, the main techniques of misinformation? Sure. The acronym I use to help me and other people remember it is FLIC, F-L-I-C-C. These are the five main techniques of misinformation, and they stand for fake experts, which I mentioned earlier, logical fallacies, impossible expectations, which is demanding impossible standards of proof from the science. Cherry-picking, just um, selectively picking just little pieces of data and ignoring all of the evidence, and conspiracy theories. Mm, Well, some super helpful information there. I'm sure hopefully our listeners will get a lot out of that. John, thanks so much for joining us on air this morning. Pleasure to talk to you. Perfect. So that was John Cook from the Monash Climate Change Communication Research Hub speaking about climate misinformation and how it has been played out in the past with politics and in the media. Ella, do you have any thoughts or reflections after what was um, quite an interesting interview from my perspective? Yeah, no, it's fascinating. I don't know about you, Jacob. 3CR offered us a place a few months ago in this... um, uh, misinformation training so i was trying to remember the official name but that's essentially Mm. what it was um and yeah it was really fun going through different activities um they have little tasks for us to do to um kind of you're almost like a little detective trying to crack the case and looking for the um evidence um so yeah i think um there's a lot more stuff like that um going on now so i think people are just becoming more and more savvy but obviously it's always a kind of a race against people who are more and more savvy at creating misinformation. So Oh, absolutely. You know, sharpen your skill set. <laughs> I do think it's something we, we should be teaching in schools actually is misinformation and, and media literacy because it's it's such a big issue. I mean, you look at some of the stuff the Murdoch media yeah. have been publishing and even that example I gave of Q and A last night, you know, it is worrying that some of the more mainstream outlets are commonly uh, using those techniques that John was talking about before. Definitely. Yeah, I think, um, I'm trying to remember where it is. Is it Sweden where it is part of the school curriculum now, which is cool? Um, So it'd Mm. be interesting to see what it's like there. Um, But yeah, that kind of uh, false, what's the word, opposition where it has the two sides. The fake expert, um, yeah. Yeah, or where it has, yeah, we're, we're just showing the for and against, but it's like <laughs> we're 99.9% of climate scientists. Yeah, are, we're pretty um, sure. And yeah, <laughs> no one who actually has expertise in the area is against it. So um, yeah, kind of just, um, yeah, distorts the picture of um yeah how serious it is um, mm. i think that's a tactic that's used in a lot of issues yeah it does mm. remind me of a um an article that we studied um in one of my university courses from the herald sun in which they they compared the words of a climate scientist to that of a local lifeguard down at the <laughs> pool who said oh no it's been quite a cold summer actually like climate change isn't actually happening um, so I think that was uh, pretty telling. Yeah, wow. God, scary. <laughs> Yikes. <laughs>
Um, now, we're going to take a short break, but before we do, our um, uh, content managers just put through an announcement, which I'm going to read out. So, um, King Lake Friends of the Forest are uh, asking you to gather at the beautiful Tulongi, a Tanglefoot picnic area. Excuse me for my... Uh tongue-tiedness this morning, <laughs> um, at 2 p.m. on Saturday the 9th to oppose Vic Forest's planned logging along the track. So that's Saturday the 9th of April at 2 p.m. this Saturday. Um, and basically irreplaceable forests are being smashed for paper pulp. Um, this can be stopped. The Great Tree Project's epic 80-metre mountain ash sculpture will be unveiled. So you can get more details from King Lake Friends of the Forest at kinglakefriendsoftheforest.com. Um, so, yeah, it sounds like a really important event. Um, now, we're going to take a short break. When we come back, uh, Claudia will be speaking with writer Sarah Kronostein, author of this month's quarterly essay titled Waving, Not Drowning, Mental Illness and Vulnerability in Australia. Words out. Freedom of species has hit the airwaves. Tune in for debates and updates on both local and international animal protection news and events and learn about how you can live a cruelty-free, sustainable lifestyle. News, views and non-leather shoes. That's Freedom of Species, 1pm Sundays on 3CR. Authorised by the last few remaining kangaroos, Canberra. They're pulling on the boots in Brazil and wiping off the eggshells in Moorabbin. Fascism's on the march and we say, yeah, nah. Yeah, no fuss around. There's a new weekly program on 3CR dedicated to tracking this rise in Australia, Aotearoa and all around our increasingly warm little globe. Every Thursday at 4.30pm, we'll be talking to writers and fighters about some angry blighters.
You're listening to 3CR Breakfast, and we just heard Glued to the Spot from Cheryl Glasgow. This is Claudia back in the studio, and you're listening to 3CR Wednesday Breakfast. The time is 11 past 8. Our next guest is Sarah Krasnerstein. Sarah has a doctorate in criminology and is the award-winning author of The Trauma Cleaner and The Believer. This month, the quarterly essay has published her work on mental illness in Australian society. It's titled, Not Waving, Drowning, Mental Illness and Vulnerability in Australia. Sarah argues that mental health is a great isolator, but also has the potential to be a great unifier. We're going to hear her thoughts on this and why she believes Australian society is struggling to accept mental illness despite its widespread prevalence. Welcome, Sarah. Hi, Claudia. Thanks for joining us this morning. Thanks Thanks so much for having me. And congratulations on this incredibly uh, engaging, insightful piece of writing. Thank you. you. Not waving, drowning. Uh, If that is not a call for help, I'm not sure what is. Uh, How did you come to write this piece and what were you trying to say with that title? Uh, well, the title is a quote from the Stevie Smith poem, and it kind of relates to the fact, uh, well, the idea that I'm trying to kind of write towards throughout the essay, which is, you know, we've got super high prevalence mental illness. We know that, you know, mental illness will inevitably affect all of us in the nation directly or indirectly. And at the same time, we all are aware that it's heavily stigmatized. So, you know, cultural norms like she'll be right and toughen up and all the rest of it, the hesitancy to appear to be discredited or unstable or negative or bad because of an illness, Um, you know, all of these things we present as though we're better than we are when, you know, in reality we're drowning. So... It was a topic that I was thinking about for a long time before I wrote professionally. I uh, was a lawyer, and then I you know, did my PhD in the area of criminal law, and so I saw just the sheer number of people that were ending up in the criminal justice system of every state and territory, not because they were bad people, not because they'd done the wrong thing, but for want of earlier, better care, treatment, and support for health issues. And I wanted to kind of hold that up and kind of consider why we keep on doing something which we know isn't working and is quite cruel and uh, and an act of an act against kind of being compassionate to ourselves given the prevalence at the end of the day yeah you've um mentioned the law there that's a big part of um the lens through which you uh, discuss this topic You've also delved quite deeply into Australia's colonial history. Mm. You use psychological theory, there's politics, and of course, the most importantly, the lived experience of those at the coalface of mental illness. And um, there's a very human side to what you write. Can you tell us a bit about this approach and why you use these different filters? Yeah, sure. So I... You know, the question that I'm always asking, whether it's something, you know, on a personal level or a relational level or a collective group behavior, is where did this come from? Why why is it so? Um, And, you know, given how entrenched 
that stigma is and the fact that we have empirical evidence, so much of it by this point, that it uh, is compounded for already marginalized groups across society. The question for me was, you know, is this enduring pattern of stigmatizing a punitive response to people that need help, health, health, um, people that are presenting, you know, in their most vulnerable time, is this pattern of stigmatizing that and punishing that related to our collective past? And, you know, I've been here since 1994, and, you know, I kind of thought it was funny at first when uh, – People were having a particularly shit day, and they'd say, oh, you know, how are you going? Pretty ordinary. You know, what kind of, what, what is that concealment? What is that hesitancy related to? Could the ex- historical experience of white settlement in this country have taught previous generations who are not so removed from us now in this moment to fear anything that could be perceived as weakness and instability or vulnerability or interdependency? Because it is an unaddressed pattern in our history to locate all of those kind of reviled characteristics, things that we've been taught to be repulsed by, only in others, when the data shows that it's all of us. So, you know, group psychology was one lens to look at that through. Law was another lens to look at that through. And, you know, spending time with the people who had, you know, service, use experience, lived experience of all of these factors collapsing on top of them. Um, was another way of looking at it, and also my personal experience as a system user myself. Such a lot in there, which is why it's such a um, fascinating piece to read because you're just thinking across so many different spectrums and and realising that what is already so complex in terms of different types of mental illness and the intersectionality with housing and um, domestic violence and things also has many more dimensions which you open up uh, one's eyes to when you read it. Um, You describe mental illness as a great isolator. Can you expand on that for us? Sure. Well, you know, we know, firstly, that, you know, mostly talking about the stigma and the various ways it presents. So we know that across the country there are at least uh, a million people with mental illness who are receiving no clinical care. And in certain cases, that's because they simply cannot access it uh, for a range of access issues, which are unacceptable given that we have a public health system uh, and that we have data about that lack of access. And in many, many, many other cases, that's because they have chosen not to seek the help that they need because they are fearful of, of the stigma of being perceived to be crazy. Um, and, you know, I think having um, multiple lenses to look at that through reflects the nature of the problem itself. Because, you know, I quote Mental Health Victoria saying that there are a few areas as formally, as formally examined as um, mental health care. So we have numerous public inquiries, government inquiries um, in, in across the country that have shown that wherever you find yourself, the system will be in crisis. And so we have no lack of information, but we have a real failure of will when it comes to operationalizing those recommendations. We cherry-pick from them or we ignore them. Then things reach crisis point or stay in crisis, and then we, you know, fund another public inquiry as though the problem is lack of information. So 
you know, it, 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 it is keep people still do not access the care they need, either because they can't or because they're frightened to. And I think that, you know, this, this notion that the problem is located in the mental health system is really dangerous because, yes, we need more funding. We need better integrated services and sectors, absolutely. But unless we address what we know to be the social determinants of mental health in the first place, and that stigma and that marginalization as it presents not just about mental health, but about race, ethnicity, gender, sexuality, all of these other factors that are also marginalized and stigmatized, the need for these services will continue to overwhelm even the best-funded reform. So we have to look at it through these lenses. It is intersectional because tinkering just in what we call the mental health system is not going to be effective unless we fund teachers and resource them to look out for children who are struggling and in crisis, unless we give their parents with a, provide their parents with affordable housing, often single mothers. You know, there's a gender pay gap that affects this, presents as, as family violence. These problems are all different versions of the same thing, and we continue to treat them as though they're not. You also um, bring under the spotlight Australia's national character, mm. and I wondered if you could talk a little bit about that. You talk about sunnier um, images of, of Australians as being a community of helpers and something Scott Morrison likes to um, go on about a bit. We like to look out for our neighbour, but what, what's the rest of it? Well, it all comes down to who we consider to be our neighbors. So, you know, you shift the light and, you know, other dark, darker characteristics emerge, which we've had a real reluctance to look at through the same lens of our national history. So when it comes to the good stuff, we're had no problem saying, oh, because we all collectively went through this, this, and this, we, you know, good to our neighbors. But when we look at, you know, our treatment of difference across the board, we don't look to the past to kind of ask these questions about, well, this enduring dysfunctional pattern when it comes to difference in any form, where does that come from? Could that be connected to our collective past as well? And it's not a radical idea, and it's not my idea. Group psychology has been around for at least 100 years. We know that personal pains in our family systems and our relational life manifest in particular collective political behavioral patterns. Um, but we then look again, and I have a line in the essay that, you know, our kind of the dominant discussion of history in this country has been limited to debates over the sphere of acceptable forgetting um, instead of looking to the past to see how it's impacted behavioral patterns that no longer serve us and what might lie on the other side of getting that right for a change. It's interesting um, you, you bring that up because while you're talking, I'm, I'm thinking about the debates at the moment about the history curriculum in Australia and, and you know, the sort of one side saying that we need to show more of our dark past and the other um, wanting to project a more positive national image of our history. Um, in some ways, you're saying the same thing in, in this area perhaps we're not really facing the reality of who we are. And, you know, we have one of the highest suicide rates in the world. Um, but do Australians see themselves in that light? 
I mean, we will need to at some point sooner or later. It's not just that it's, it's, it's more, it's healthier or more useful or more effective. Our suicide rate is so concerning and the data around that shows, you know, that it disproportionately affects, uh, communities of color, uh, LGBTQI communities, indigenous communities, and white rural males. So again, what we've learned from 125 years of psychoanalytical theory is that there's nothing as powerful as the unaddressed patterns of the past and how they present in the present. So that, excuse me, stupid debate about history is incredibly insidious because unless we, you know, look at the impacts, of, the living impacts of colonization as a continuing project, unless we look at, you know, responsibility and causation and context, we will continue to be dealing with the health consequences that are literally killing us. And you also comment about the direction that Australia is going in. You say that we're, we like to see ourselves more like the Nordic countries um, in the way we, we see our government's role to fix mental health issues, but we're heading more towards an American-style way of being. Can you explain what you mean there and what are the risks we face if we're moving in this direction? Sure. So, you know, at one time the story of our government was kind of a, you know, publicly funded health and education and housing program. We still have in certain ways these social democratic reflexes. You know, we've seen that in the pandemic when you look at, you know, the relatively small size of anti-lockdown protests and the American political language that they use. We didn't have kind of our own Australian language for something that was freedom over equality, that was very much a, an American thing. Um, and you saw, you know, Trump supporters at each of those lockdowns. So, you know, that we, the story, and I write about this in the essay, of the pandemic is that in our collective vulnerability, we very much expected the government to step in and help us, and governments to lesser or lesser degrees, could mobilize to put funds where they were needed fairly rapidly. So we know we can do this, and we know that it's the fair thing and it's the right thing. Um, and yet when it comes to an urgent mental health catastrophe in that system, we still have these failures of will. And we saw that in Victoria, particularly in the debate over the mental health levy that was recommended by the Royal Commission into Mental Health. Um, it was an independent public inquiry, and it was politicized at the speed of light by conservative politics and the commercial interests that, you know, they're in a symbiotic relationship with. And so that's a very American turn towards, you know, a language of individual liberty over equality. And it's, you know, specious because it privileges commercial interests and it maintains social hierarchies. And it's not, it hasn't been a part, a strong, as strong a part of our political discourse um, or as kind of uncontroversially accepted by the electorate as we've seen in the last kind of two years. So we're going to have to wrap up now, but can you just tell us um, in the final few words why you then believe that mental illness has the potential to unify us as a nation? Yeah, well, you know, my most hopeful that I get, uh, and I apologize because I don't seem to be very optimistic, but I do think there's something there that it could function in the way that, you know, the pandemic was politicized and climate change is politicized, but it will become increasingly difficult to not fund or support the 
empirical, empirically proven changes that we need because of the sheer prevalence of mental illness. We act as though this is only something that happens to others. And yes, while it is compounded for already marginalized groups, this is something that is eventually going to impact everyone in society, and we can no longer look away at some point. I do believe that. Thank you so much for joining us. It's, um, Thank you so much it's for been a, me. a pleasure. That was writer Sarah Krasnerstein talking about not waving drowning, mental illness and vulnerability in Australia, published in the quarterly essay, which is on sale now. Excellent. That was a really good interview. Um, and, yeah, I think, as she said, we saw all these um, things happen in the pandemic, which we were told weren't possible or that's not how the system functioned. And then suddenly when, yeah, um, the situation uh, forced to change it this possible. Yeah, so and we, we can apply got to have vaccines in a year and so forth. Yeah, yeah, yep. and yeah, countless examples. So I wish they could get those public housing yep. <laughs> sites going yep, as quickly. Yeah. Truly some fascinating insights there about how we're moving in the direction of American countries, but we do see the government having a, a similar role as Nordic countries. Mm, what are your yeah. thoughts on that in regards to the, the mental health system? Well, fascinating is one word for it. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not, yeah, too excited by it. Um, but, yeah, I think, um, yeah, she said we, we're just a bit out of touch with the reality a lot of the time. Um, we might be, yeah, on the Nordic level in regards to, like, um, GDP and, um, yeah, wealth, but not so much in terms of our approach and thinking. Um, and I think, yeah, people are often unaware um, how in need and how in crisis a lot of the systems are. Yeah, I think we, you know, it'd be nice if we could move more closely to a social democratic way of functioning. You know, I wonder sometimes with the politics, you know, whether we didn't already have things like Medicare, what the government of the day would, would have done. You know, we're lucky we've got some yeah. of those mm. welfare um, systems in place, but... Yeah, they're slightly being eroded. So, yeah, it's a really um, insightful essay and gives you lots to think about. Yeah, absolutely. And, yeah, we're lucky to have things like Medicare, but even um, uh, systems like that are, yeah, far from perfect. There's a lot of issues. Um, But I can see the clock ticking along, so we don't have time to get started on those. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And, yeah, I think that's about all we've got time for. So a big thank you to our guests. Thanks to our listeners for tuning in. And we'll be back with you next week. Have a great week. Stick around for Stick Together. 3CR Breakfast would like to thank the New International Bookshop, Melbourne's independent radical bookstore and venue, for their financial support of this program. You can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall in Victoria Street, Carlton. And while you're there, check out Radical Coffee, a worker-run cooperative cafe in the courtyard. Keep up to date with upcoming events at nibs.org.au.